Good news. My new book is finally here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth, and you can order it now wherever books are sold. I wrote this book after the five-year span between 2016 and 2020 when I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked literally every area of my life, my health, relationships, money, career, social status, and even my very sense of self. And along the way, I really got to experience firsthand how dysfunctional our culture's relationship is to loss. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success and shackled with isolation and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and our evolution not only as individuals, but also as a collective. So this book expands the conversation around loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we definitely cover those too, in order to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. So whether you're experiencing hardship now, or know you have past hurts that are holding you back in certain ways and still need healing, this book is here to support you. It's also a great book to gift to clients, family members, friends, just other women in your world who are going through a challenging time. It will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. So within the loving pages of this book, you will have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. It was not a joy to live this journey, but it really was a joy to write it. And you can find it again, wherever books are sold and the audio version of the book is available as well. If you would like some gifts to accompany you on your heartbreak journey, you can get those at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. Those are free. Whenever you order books, you can just send in your invoice or your receipt and we'll send you those accompanying gifts. Enjoy. That I realized that a large part of my not wanting to be a mother had to do with not wanting to continue in a way the family dysfunction that had been part of my story. Welcome to Herself, an internal family systems and women's spirituality podcast, and a space for you to come home to your innate wholeness and wisdom. You're in the right place if you're devoted to showing up for not only your outer, but also your inner life with courage and compassion. And if you feel inspired to do that in the good company of other women who are also committed to cultivating greater and greater levels of inner peace and outer fulfillment. I'm your host, Sarah Avon Stover, the author of three books, a certified internal family systems practitioner, and a pioneering teacher of women's spirituality for the past 24 years and counting. Here, we explore all different facets of a woman's spiritual and healing journey, both the pretty and the not so pretty parts. And we do this through wisdom talks, practical guidance for navigating the ups and downs of our paths with more grace and gusto, and conversations with other inspiring wayfinders. Above all, if you're here, you know that your continued deepening also serves the healing of our world. I'm happy you're here. Let's dive in. 
you. I first posted about Ruby and her new book, Women Without Kids, on my Instagram this past spring, and a lot of conversation was sparked from that uh, because this is an important conversation. There are so many conversations around motherhood, and those of us who don't have children for various reasons, I know I'm not alone and often feeling like motherhood is a private club that we don't have access to. But there are, at the same time, not really any or just very few conversations about or among those of us who are women without kids. And that's one of the many reasons why I love Ruby's new book and what we explore around it today. So Ruby brings a much more nuanced, deep thinking process and exploration to this topic from various lifestyle circumstances and choices that go into not having children to other kinds of legacies that we can leave as women beyond children, the role that intergenerational trauma and healing that plays into whether or not we have children, stereotypes and stereotype busting, and so much more. I really appreciate how well-spoken and thoughtful Ruby is, not to mention a gifted writer. So let me tell you more about her. Ruby Warrington is the author of the new book, Women Without Kids, which was published by my publisher, Sounds True, in March of 2023. She is also creator of the term Sober Curious, and her book with that title, which came out in 2019, and also a million download podcast of the same title, have spearheaded a global movement to reevaluate our relationship with alcohol. With over 20 years' experience as a lifestyle journalist, author, and editor, Ruby is known as an astute cultural commentator and a true thought leader. She is also the founder of a self-publishing incubator called Numinous Books. So since more and more women are not having children for a multitude of reasons, and even more so in the generation below me, there will be more of us aging and maturing on the planet in future years. So it's time that we bring more awareness to what Ruby calls the rise of the unsung sisterhood. Whether you're a woman with or without kids, please have a listen and share this with others too, because this is really important. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, Ruby. It's good to have you here with us. Well, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. And we always start with a personal check-in. So I welcome you to share with us where you're joining us from today in the world and also how you're doing right now at the levels of body, heart, and mind. I'm joining you today from what is currently my home in Miami, Florida. Um, I've been on the road for the past month, 33 days, actually. I got back just the day before yesterday. So physically, I'm feeling a little discombobulated um, and quite tired but extremely grateful to be home and to be in my own environment again. Um, 
slowly making my way back into my my beloved routine. And I say beloved, my I can sometimes get a little too attached to my routine. So <laughs> on some levels, it's been quite healthy for me to be a little bit all over the place for the past month. Um, I was just sharing, I'm just coming out of the kind of initial launch push with women without kids. And on an emotional level, I'm feeling very full and satisfied with the way that has gone. I've got lots of um, lots of feedback that has let me know the book is being received with the intention that I was written. So that's been very gratifying. Um, yeah. So you said body, heart, and what was the other? Mind. Mind. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. I forgot. So <laughs> again, I'm a little I'm a little scattered just because I've been so. Um, yeah, across multiple time zones, seven different cities, 11 different beds over the past month. So a little bit scattered, but I'm looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, that's a lot. And what were, were those all book events that you were doing these past 33 days? No, actually, um, yes, there were four book events, three in person, one virtual. Um, and the trip, it began as a family trip, really. I was coordinating a visit to the UK um, that coincided with my nephew's Easter holiday, Easter break. Um, my brother lives in Germany, so we converged on Suffolk, which is the county in UK where my mum lives. So I spent some time with her and it just so happened. We actually sold the UK version of the book after that trip had been booked. And it just so happened that the date for the launch was just the following week. So then I was able to stay longer, put some book events in. And then it transpired that it was my father-in-law's 80th at the end of the month. So I figured I might as well just stay in Europe for a couple of weeks, extend my visit with my brother um, to be able to attend that family birthday celebration. So it was, it was, it was more so a family visit that then got some book things baked into it. So it worked out quite well. Yeah. And it's nice that they could intersect like that. Yeah, exactly. And I, in my mind, I had you in New York city, but you're, you're in Miami. Is that a recent move? Yeah, I moved, uh, I moved to New York in 2012 and then moved down to Florida last year. That was, um, both moves were for my husband's work. Um, I also got married in Miami 20 years ago this summer and have always felt a connection to this place. So when the opportunity came up, it felt like a a big yes, especially after going through the whole of COVID in our one bedroom apartment in New York, which was quite intense. So you can imagine as it was for so many of us. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure if we'll be staying. I don't, I feel like New York actually, we had really made a, a life and a home there. Um, it's a very special city and we're both from London and it's closer culturally um, to London and sort of feels just more like us, even though my body <laughs> is really loving the climate and the slightly more easeful pace in Miami. Um, so if anything, I'll come away from this experience, perhaps um, perhaps by placing a higher priority on making sure I, I, I spend some time each year um, in a more kind of laid back climate, if I can make it happen. Yeah, I relate to that. I'm from New York City. I love it. It's, it is a special place. And it has a certain intensity that's not that easy on the nervous system and also being in a more a warmer or a humid you know, water side, you know, beach side place has a different impact for sure. It does. 
but um for both my husband and and I our nervous systems kind of thrive a bit on that intensity um and so I think we both miss it (laughs) actually yeah (laughs) so I've been looking forward to this conversation and I first I first heard of your book months ago uh, on Instagram with Jodi Day, Gateway Women, she posted about it and it's been on my radar since then. And I interviewed Jodi here on the podcast a couple of years ago to talk about women without children. And listeners, if you're interested in that episode, it's uh, episode 36. And it was one of my most popular episodes. I got so many emails from women just appreciating that I was having that conversation. So this is a topic close to my heart. I am a woman without children, and I know a lot of women in this community are as well. Um, so for you, since writing a book is such a huge undertaking, I'm curious, you shared that you feel like the book is being received in alignment with your intention. And I'm curious what your initial intention was behind writing this. And also your last book was Sober Curious. And I'm and I'm curious, how, how did you go from that to deciding that this was going to be your next book? Um, I'll address that first piece, that second piece first, and I'll actually include my first book, Material Girl, Mystical Worlds, which came out in 2017. That first book detailed, it was very connected to the project I was running at the time, which was called The Numinous, which was an online magazine dedicated to kind of modernizing and bringing up to date a lot of mystical and new age practices for what I started terming the now age. Um, and it was really driven by my own desire to, I mean, honestly understand and know myself and my place in the world better. And I turned to practices like yoga and meditation, um, astrology, tarot to, to discover more about myself and, and some of the challenges in particular that I was experiencing at the time. It was through engaging with all of those practices coinciding with the beginning, with my move stateside in 2012, the book, like I said, came out years later, but I had been involved in that world for quite a long time. Through engaging with those practices, I realized that the way that I was using alcohol was not only um, a block to me really truly understanding myself on a much deeper level, but that also I was using it to medicate um, a lot of things that I didn't really understand and that I wasn't, didn't have the tools to grapple with in my life. And so it was actually the work of that first book that led to me getting sober curious and then sort of coining that term and hosting events on the subject and really spearheading a movement around this idea of sober curiosity, which is really about giving people permission to examine their relationship with alcohol without it having to come with the label of alcoholic attached. And it was through removing alcohol And really kind of getting deeper into the weeds of particularly, like I said, just some of the things I wasn't able to face about myself and my life, some of the more confusing um, root issues, I suppose, that I had been grappling with that began to shine a light on the fact that not having children was actually, um, it was indicative of something deeper that I needed to look at in myself specifically as it pertains to my relationship with my parents and my family of origin. And so when I came to this subject, Women Without Kids, it was truly because having reached my kind of early 
sort of edging towards mid 40s and looking ahead to menopause and contemplating what that change might bring, that I realized I had no regrets about not having children, that this absolutely had always been the right path for me. It having been, though, something I had questioned deeply and something that had been questioned about me (laughs) by other people um, quite intensely throughout my 20s and 30s, I'd had a lot of self-doubt. I carried a lot of shame about not wanting to be a mother. Um, The doubts were around whether I was deluded, whether I was missing something, whether I was in denial about wanting to be a mother, whether I would regret not becoming a parent, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was kind of looking ahead to menopause, realizing I was actually, if anything, quite excited about what this next phase of life might bring, which again, is very counter to what was sort of taught about this, this phase of life, particularly for women, that I realized I had no regrets. Like I said, that this absolutely was the right path for me. And I was also at that point, probably four or five years into my sober curious journey, had really removed alcohol and and done a lot of work on getting into some of those deeper kind of particularly family, dysfunctional family dynamics, that I realized that a large part of my not wanting to be a mother had to do with not wanting to continue in a way, the family dysfunction that had been part of my story. And I felt that that was something that wasn't really being spoken about at all in this conversation about people either choosing not to have children or even questioning whether or not they wanted to have children. Um, And that sort of led me to, 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 see I suppose that despite the fact that the birth rate globally is in steep and steady decline and has been declining for the past century um, we weren't really still having a deep and nuanced conversation about why women were either choosing to have fewer children choosing to have no children at all questioning whether they wanted to become mothers having difficulty um, you know meeting the right circumstances to start a family Um, And I also was sort of interested in the fact that 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 enormous global demographic shift, um, demographic shift was actually reflective of millions and millions of individual women's personal decisions, often very conflicted and fraught decisions about family formation, um, but that it was still often seen as a problem. And there was a lot of scaremongering around the falling birth rate when actually... (laughs) It simply reflects women having more agency um, over our bodies, more agency over our lives, more access to different opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. And while there were sort of small factions online that were sort of celebrating the child-free lifestyle, it all seemed a little bit one-dimensional. And like I said, it just didn't really seem like there was um, enough nuance and depth being brought to the conversation. So yeah, it was reaching a time in my own life where I was ready to excavate some of my deeper whys for not wanting to be a mother, um, coinciding with this sort of, this this highlight being put on this demographic shift um, that's really gonna impact society in a major way in the century to come. It just sort of felt like this was, for me, quite obviously the next project that I was excited to dive into. Yeah, it sounds like it was time for you personally and also time for us collectively like you said, there's been such a void in the collective for a deeper and more nuanced conversation. And that's one of the reasons why I'm excited to have you on because, because you really, you really bring that in this book. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to, I also wanted to name that, you know, I read, I read a lot of books and when you read a book, you can tell 
whether or not someone is is a writer. You know, the, a lot of a lot of people write books, but not everyone is a writer. But you are clearly a writer. Can can you speak about just like what what is your background with writing, and also what was your process in for writing this book? Um, <clears throat> well, yes, first of all, like you say, not everybody who writes a book is a writer. And I'm actually very grateful that that is the case, because in my quote unquote day job, <laughs> I help non-writers write their books and it's incredibly fulfilling and satisfying work. And I, and I love that, that aspect of my working life. But in terms of my writing life, it begins with me always being a reader. I was an early reader. And as soon as I could read, I had my head in a book. I always found such pleasure and solace in stories and books. And so I've always from age three or four <laughs> had a book on the go, you know? And so I think um, anybody who is an avid reader sort of develops almost um, intuitively a taste or a talent for writing. I think just through my reading practice, you know, I have done a lot of research on what it means to be a great writer. <laughs> um, oh, you actually froze there for a second, but I think we're back. You're hearing me okay. Yeah. Sorry. No problem. <laughs> um, I couldn't tell if you were frozen or just ripped <laughs> by what I was saying. <laughs> Um, so yeah, there's the fact that I've always been a reader and so I've always loved books, always been drawn to books. Um, but I didn't consider this as a career for myself until I decided a little bit late to go to university and study fashion promotion, which is a little bit of a random degree. I was very interested in working for magazines at the time. I was very interested in fashion. Um, and it was actually a surprise to me that the journalism component of that course was the place where I really excelled and found um, the most satisfaction and enjoyment and was praised almost very from my from my tutors very early on for having a very unique and distinctive voice. And this coincided with in the book, I talk about a very damaging relationship that I got into age 16 that sort of took me through my college years, actually. and finding my writing voice in my college degree in my early 20s was actually one of the major things that gave me the confidence to leave that relationship because finding my voice as a writer led me to believe that I could independently forge a career for myself that would bring me real personal satisfaction and fulfillment and I realized at the time I wouldn't be able to do that if I remained in that relationship and so it actually has quite um yeah, it's quite an emotional charge for me, actually, when I think about what really propelled my career as a writer. But I think that actually, you know, so I worked in, in magazine journalism for many years, um, writing, doing writing in that sense. And I actually think that working with other authors on their books as an editor has really helped my voice to become much stronger, much clearer. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I know that the work that I do, like I said, as a kind of manuscript consultant has actually massively improved my writing as well in terms of structure, in terms of voice. And so with this book in particular, I really, I took, it wasn't that I took more time with it, but I was more conscious about how I was using language. Um, and I really wanted to have fun with it as well. I wanted this to be a really enjoyable and pleasurable read rather than it just delivering information. So there's quite a lot of storytelling in the book. I really have consciously brought a lot of metaphor, 
um, a lot of sort of visual imagery, even to where I'm describing sort of more, um, I don't know, um, more sort of technical or research heavy um, passages, etc. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for acknowledging that you enjoyed the writing, because I really did bring a lot of intention to the writing with this book. Partly, like I said, because I really, I get so much pleasure from reading great writing. And I wanted to be able to offer that to my readers, partly because I know that the books that I enjoy reading the most are the books that I want to recommend to my friends, the books that stay with me the longest, the books that impact me most deeply, really draw me in. Um, and the way that we draw people in as writers is to create a really compelling vision, you know, um, and to really bring the text alive with our writing. Yeah, it is really an art form. And, and I could tell that, that you, you had fun writing that. It's, yeah, there are times where you share technical things and research, but you never do it in a dry way. It's always very interesting and engaging. I had fun with it, and it was also incredibly challenging. I mean, this is by far the hardest piece of work that I've ever um, embarked on. And there were definitely times midway through the manuscript where I questioned whether I had the skill to really pull it off. I think naively, um, I sort of went into this subject without realizing quite how deep I would need to go with it and quite how many areas of life it would touch on and quite how many painful um, emotions, realizations it would bring up for me. Um, I say naively because actually, yeah, the conversation about whether or not to have kids is, and this is part of, part of why so much of what I saw about the child-free conversation online focused very much on the, the freedom, the autonomy, um, all of the kind of plus points, I suppose, to not having children. And then you have people like Jodie Day, who has an amazing organization, which is really specifically for helping women grieve the children they weren't able to have. But it struck me that in between those two extremes, there are so many shades of gray that even the most empowered um, and autonomous decision around not having children can be coming from a place of pain. And I wanted to acknowledge that too. So writing it was incredibly <laughs> challenging um, for many reasons. On the personal level, it brought up a lot of painful stuff for me to process and confront. And then within the context of this kind of global shift, um, as much as a lot of it is about women being more empowered, having more freedom, having more autonomy, there's a shadow side to this as well, you know, um, which became very apparent and really pulled me into some quite deep, dark places in the writing process. Yeah, so let's let's dive into that. And uh, you introduce these ideas of the motherhood spectrum and the mommy binary. And I thought those were really helpful ideas um, to bring into our understanding. Can, can you talk about what those are? Yeah, sure. So the motherhood spectrum is my um, antidote to the mommy binary, I suppose. And this actually came very much out of my work with Sober Curious. Um, so in terms of the mommy binary, traditionally we've had sort of mothers who are seen as natural, um, self-sacrificing in a good way, um, nurturing, um, on the path to fulfillment, <laughs> um, doing their duty, et cetera, et cetera. We've had non-mothers who are 
sad, selfish, dysfunctional, um, deluded perhaps. And this not only seemed to me very two-dimensional and quite toxic, but also not reflective of women's actual experiences about around motherhood and non-motherhood, you know? There are some mothers who are regretful and unfulfilled and harried and out of their depth. And there are some non-mothers who are absolutely living their purpose, um, incredibly nurturing caregivers to other people and other children in their communities, et cetera, et cetera. So the motherhood spectrum, um, and, I, and I relate it back to Sober Curious because I came to that looking at how we had this very binary idea around problem drinking. You have either problem drinkers who are alcoholics and have a disease and can never drink again once they have realized, confessed, or admitted to themselves that they're alcoholics. And you have normal drinkers who are able to drink without experiencing any problems whatsoever. Again, this seemed very two-dimensional and not reflective of our actual lived experiences. And so with the motherhood spectrum, which is the first chapter of the book, I present the idea that actually any individual's desire and aptitude for parenthood will be influenced by a multitude of factors, internal and external. So everything from personality to hopes, dreams, desires, ambitions, to the family and culture that they were raised in, to their financial situation, to their relationship status, um, to their physical, mental well-being, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that these factors, and therefore where a person might orient on the motherhood spectrum, are also subject to change throughout the course of a person's life. This just seemed like a much more um, humane and honest um, reflection of our experiences in this area. So, yeah, I, I, I hadn't um, ever heard of anything like the motherhood spectrum before. It seemed quite revelatory to me when I started to think about my own desire or lack of desire for motherhood through that lens um, and in that chapter I kind of offer various reflections and there's even a list of questions at the end of the chapter to help people just kind of dig deeper into their own orientation when it comes to motherhood. Yeah I thought those questions were really really helpful and you know you also with with the money binary it's like you talk about how that really comes out of these stereotypes that we have in our culture. Mm. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about the larger context of all this is happening in of pronatalism. And I spoke about that with Jody Day on our podcast, but like the listeners haven't, haven't heard that yet. And also in the book, you mentioned um, the reference to Caliban and the witch. And I'm wondering if you could, you could read that in here as well. Yeah, sure. So Jodie was the first person to elucidate me about the concept of pronatalism. I was unfamiliar with that term um, before embarking on my research for this book. Although I think I might have seen it in the news where people would talk about pronatalist policies, meaning policies that might pay out cash benefits to people who decide to have children or even policies that are around kind of giving both parents like extensive paid parental leave, et cetera, et cetera. I'd seen these defined as pronatalist, whereas I think perhaps the first example I just gave is pronatalist. And the second example is more of a pro-family policy. <laughs> and I'll sort of explain the difference there. Pronatalism, as Jody described it to me, is a cornerstone of patriarchy and it is the ideology that essentially says that parents are more valid members of society than non-parents. 
And I think any non-parent who hears that will immediately almost recognize the feeling of the impact of pronatalism in their body. You're smiling as I say it. And I yeah, think that's true. probably something that you, you feel as a non-parent, just this yeah. idea that somehow my life and contributions even are not as valid as those of parents. And then within that as well, people who are married, heterosexual people who are married particularly are more valid than single people. So for single people without children, you're really feeling the double whammy of the impact of pronatalist ideology in terms of how we are perceived in the world, how we're treated by other people, and in terms of policies. Like, for example, I have a friend, he's a gay man, and he works for a newspaper in the UK. And when he found out I was writing this book, he said, well, you know, this applies to me too. <laughs> and he was telling me about how, as a non-parent, he recently was told by his head of department that he wasn't allowed to book any of his vacation time until all of the parents had booked their vacation time, which is wow. justifiable, I suppose, in the sense that parents have a smaller window when they can take time off when their children are out of school. But at the same time, he is a non-parent bears the brunt of that. And it's also assuming that he as a non-parent doesn't have the same level of responsibility or challenges on his life and time that parents might do. So that's an example of how pronatalism might sort of play out in our lives, but it can also play out just in people having people feeling entitled to an opinion about <laughs> how we're engaging with our procreative potential and our reproductive lives. Um, you know, well-meaning or not, people telling us we might regret not having children. All these sorts of offhand comments are justified in a pronatalist culture. And the reason I said that something like, you know, a policy that offers both parents extensive paid parental leave is more of a pro-family policy than simply paying cash bonuses to people for having kids. The latter, or the former rather, paid parental leave is acknowledging um, that parents need support in order, not least, to give their children what they need and to give their family what it needs. Simply paying people to have children um, as an incentive to procreate is less focused on the quality of life that that child is going to have or that those parents are going to have um, and more focused simply on getting to people to produce as many offspring as possible. So yes, how this ties into Caliban and which so Caliban and the Witch is a book by a feminist scholar called Sylvia Federici, who back in the 1970s was one of the leading voices in the Wages for Housework movement, which has continued to this day, but hasn't doesn't get much airtime and I think is actually ripe for a little bit of um, rejuvenation. <laughs> the, idea, the idea being that it, by, the, by and large women's child rearing and homemaking labor is actually a vital and valid part of our econ economy um, and should be recognized as such, as in people should be paid to do this work, you know, rather than it being assumed to be a labor of love, which is what pronatalism would dictate. So her book, Caliban and the Witch, um, makes the very well-researched and academic case that the witch trials um, and the witch hunts, the genocide of witches that occurred in the Middle Ages in Europe and actually all around the world um, was actually a vital part of the transition from feudalism to capitalism. Witches within this context were any women who decided to live outside of the newly kind of 
fomented rules about women's role in society. This was a time when women and women's procreative or reproductive capacity was sort of being ring-fenced um, as um, a part of this new capitalist machine that was really about valuing human life for its earning capacity, for its work and productivity. Um, and so witches were any women who had learned how to work with the cycles of the moon or various different herbs to control their reproductive cycles, any women who were um, refusing to marry, refusing to have children, the heretics, the religious heretics of the 15th, 16th century, a huge part of their movement was refusing to procreate on the basis that under these kind of like um, new systems of governance and due to corruption within the church, life had been reduced to mere survival. So these were heretics, these were dissenters, and these women were a huge threat to the status quo that was being kind of implemented at the time. And they were rounded up and tortured, burned, murdered. And this is obviously um, an incredibly traumatic lineage that actually all women, particularly women of European descent, have in our holding our DNA. Um, and it's all hinges on this question of whether or not we will allow our bodies, our wombs, our reproductive capacity to be utilized by these capitalist structures that require constant growth, perpetual growth, and therefore a perpetual supply of new labor, of new consumers um, at the lowest possible cost to the owners and the people who are profiting the most from these systems. It's a very basic sort of overview. <laughs> Um, but the book, for anyone who's interested in really reading the research and reading the history, um, like I said, it's incredibly well cited, very well documented um, argument that Federici makes in that book. It's really fascinating and disturbing reading. And we can feel we're still living the impacts of that now. And we're and your book is helping to so reveal that and help to, helping to unwind it. And another, another concept that you bring in, which we touched on in the beginning of our conversation is this really important piece of intergenerational trauma and how we may not wanna pass on to our future generation, the wounds that we incurred with our own mothers or our own family of origins or from our lineages. And um, I know that over the past several years, I, I did a lot of really deep healing particularly around intergenerational trauma. And there were different times where I thought like, this feels like a full-time job. <laughs> like this was a lot to heal this. And I don't know if I could have been mothering a small child and doing that deep healing work. And so I think it's important to acknowledge the importance of, of this kind of healing work. And can you talk about the role that intergenerational trauma has played for you in deciding not, one of the factors in deciding not to, have children. Yeah, sure. Well, I, um, I'd had an inkling from a very young age that motherhood would not be in my path, mainly down to the fact that there were so many other things I was excited about pursuing and doing with my life. It wasn't so much that I was actively rejecting motherhood. I was just actively pursuing other things. And it wasn't really until my mid twenties when I got married and then throughout my thirties when everybody else started having children, 
that I really was questioned. Why don't you want to be a mother? When are you having children? And I had, I was confronted with my, as I describe it, affirmative. No, no, that's not for me. And it had always been enough for me, honestly, until I reached this point, having removed alcohol, having started to look a lot more closely at the root causes of some of the more challenging and deeply ingrained um, blocks, issues, um, sort of emotional stumbling blocks that I continue to be confronted with. And honestly, in particular, with regards to my relationships with my parents, um, I'd always sort of just glossed over the fact that we weren't that close, you know, and it just sort of felt like that's just how that's just who we are. But once I removed the alcohol, I really needed to know why is that? Why do I feel this way when I'm around them? Why do our conversations always end up going in this direction? Why is where is all this resentment? Where is all this stifling feeling of it's not okay to be me? Why have I not really been able to ever receive the love that my parents have said that they want to give me? These were deep questions, the kind of questions that could lead to those sort of deep healing experiences that you touched on there. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it was contemplating all of that as I started researching this subject. I knew I wanted to bring this piece in, but there wasn't really any research that showed that women without kids have any more family dysfunction than women without children, <laughs> you know? Um, I discovered that 80% of people say that they come from a dysfunctional family on some level. And yet, of course, the majority of people do have children. Um, traditionally, obviously more and more people are not having children. So I actually sent out a um, online questionnaire just to my mailing list and people in my kind of social media network and I got about 200 responses. And this question was just, the, the questions were very wide ranging, I suppose, on people's experiences of being women without kids. But there were a few questions in there that, that touched on this subject of whether or not people's relationship to their parents and their mother in particular had impacted how they felt about becoming mothers. And I was bowled over by what a huge percentage said that, yes, this was absolutely a part of their decision-making for many people, it hadn't necessarily been something that they were conscious, a, co a connection they'd made consciously before responding to that survey. I had many people reach out to me personally and thank me for sending it because it had helped really bring to light some of their deeper motivations, their unconscious perhaps motivations around questioning or shying away from, is this something I really want to repeat in my life, you know? And what I realized um, was that actually it's, it's, women born from the late 1960s onwards, so Gen X women onwards, are truly the first generation of women. And I'm talking about women in sort of like Western developed sort of democratic nations who've actually truly had the option about whether or not to become mothers. And within that, about whether or not to continue the cycles of family dysfunction that they might have experienced in their own childhoods. And I think part of what we're seeing as Generation X millennials even more so, Gen Z even more so, opting out of motherhood, questioning whether they want to continue the patterns of their family of origin. We're actually seeing, I think, the impact um, of this freedom, of this choice that people now have about whether they actually want to continue on the cycles with another generation or whether they're actually going to take on the responsibility in this lifetime for healing some of this stuff, to bringing a stop to some of this stuff now here in this life. 
And so that's a subject that I unpack in the second chapter of the book, Origin Stories. Um, it's complicated and it's not widely researched or documented. So it feels like a new concept. It feels like something I could write a PhD on if I had the time or the inclination or the finances to do that, because I think it's such a fascinating subject, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I dig into it there in chapter two, guiding people into a lot of, I suppose, self-reflection around their relationship with their mother and how that has informed how they feel about becoming mothers. For me as well, it was also in the years leading up to writing this book, um, as part of my kind of sobriety or sober curious journey, I had started having more conversations with my mother about our family. I realized I didn't really know very much at all about my lineage. Um, part of my family dysfunction is my parents not having had a relationship with their parents. And so what I inherited was this disconnect that they had had with their parents. Um, and so I'd been asking more questions about this and what I uncovered was so many stories of abuse, repression, um, mental illness, women, mothers in my lineage being um, institutionalized, having their children taken away from them, being abandoned by their partners, multiple cases of infidelities, just a lot of trauma, a lot of abuse, you know, um, that is not uncommon <laughs> at all, actually, that many families have in their history and their lineage. And so again, I think that now that we as women have the option to actually question, well, how might that be replicated in my relationship with my children? Is that something I want to replicate? Um, it's a very, it's very new. And so I think it's only really now and in the coming decades that we'll see the true impact of that piece on how families are made um, and on women's uh, reproductive kind of outcomes in general. Yeah, and something that I've been reflecting on is how this intergenerational trauma healing within one's lineage it is a kind of a legacy in and of itself. Because I was initially, I'm, I'm further in towards the, the motherhood spectrum than you. I, different times in my life, I didn't want to have children. And then similar to Jody Day's story, as I got older, I realized, no, I really do want this. And then there were a lot of complications in trying to make that happen. And then there's been a process of coming, coming to terms with that. And, mm -hmm. and I, I share more about that in my book that's coming out next year. I haven't, I haven't talked that much about my process publicly yet, but one of the things that I've realized is I, I had this longing to, to have, you know, to have like a continuation in, in my family line. And I realized that I feel that now I feel that connection with my ancestors and with the generations to come through being the one in my family who has healed the family line. And I, I, I don't feel like I need, I need to have that like actual physical child to continue that on or to feel that thread, but that it's, it's already energetically here, just intrinsically because of the healing work. I love that. That's such a beautiful reflection. And it's something I can absolutely relate to myself. In that chapter, I talk about how when for whatever reason we don't have children, something is ending with us and how we can see that as sort of, in a way, sad. Um, like it's the sort of a, a sad sort of 
ending to the the family tree or whatever it is or I, I think I use the terms we can see it as a pruning of the family tree to better encourage new growth you know and I think what's really interesting is that without wanting to give away too much of her story here my mom was someone who was always very invested in her self-work beginning with being really interested in alternative medicine and organic food back in the 1980s you know um through to undergoing extensive therapy herself to the point that she trained as a psychotherapist in her uh, late 50s, early 60s. And I was the beneficiary of her doing that work in our relationship, right? That showed up in our relationship. She was breaking something in the patterns of her lineage by choosing to actually do that work. Um, I'm now, as a result of really becoming consciously aware of that through the process of writing that book, able to appreciate that and almost engage in that work with her from my end too. So I think that this, this healing of the lineage, I think we can either do it looking ahead with the new generation, or we can do it on whatever level it's available to us by looking back to the previous generations. I'm incredibly fortunate, I think, that I've had a mother who's been willing to engage with me in an actual real-time conversations around this kinds of work. I know that's not available to a lot of people, but I think even having the intention to live our lives, um, not necessarily in honor of the people who came before us, but as a declaration that this ends with me is hugely powerful. We won't necessarily see the impact of that on our lineage going back through the ages, but I can feel the impact of it in my body and in the way that I'm able to relate to my family members now <laughs> and in terms of the way I think about my contributions to the world going forward you know it's so interesting for some reason this um this sort of phrase started going around my head probably about five or six years ago and I hadn't really connected it to this this book until recently for some reason I kept finding my saying myself saying I want to be a linchpin for healing in my family I want to be a linchpin for healing in my family and that's sort of what it feels like it feels like part of me on some level signed up for that and becoming consciously aware that that is part of my legacy that that's part of my dharma in a way um I've been able to really take action in my life to be that you know it's complicated and confusing work at times because there isn't really a road map for it and so much of it is intuitive um but I think it's incredibly valuable work and I talk about that again at the end of the chapter on the motherhood spectrum I talk about how um really making our own healing and personal work at this putting it at the center of our lives is often framed as or described as navel gazing right <laughs> as if it's so self-interested but I just think that wording is so interesting too when I say it in the book it's almost as if people who use that terminology are suggesting that women who engage in our self-work are somehow searching for the missing umbilical cord you know there's something missing oh well it's a baby of course it's a baby because that's what women are here to do well no what if there's something missing is a really clear understanding of who I am of the wounds that I carry of what occurred for the women particularly and the mothers in my lineage and how can I bring my conscious awareness to that in my life and my work mm -hmm. and my healing now so that it isn't um, perpetuated in my lifetime and in people's lives to come Let's talk about this concept of found family and also one of the big questions that women without children face is, well, who, who will take care of you when you're older? 
And it, it is a very practical question. It's an important question to consider. And why don't, why don't we, let's start, let's start with this concept of found family and uh, how, yeah, let's start with found family. So found family or sometimes chosen family is a concept that was really um, kind of fomented by queer communities in the 1960s and 70s. That is people who identified as homosexual, who had experienced um, abuse or ostracization in their families of origin, needing to find and form kinship groups beyond their biological kin. And so that's the kind of roots of this concept of found family. But for anybody who doesn't produce their own biological offspring, found family is actually incredibly important. Um, my friends feel like family to me, you know, um, in the absence of having any children of my own, these are the people who are going to hopefully be there with me throughout my life, you know. And I write in the book and, and something I came away from from the writing process with was just a real awareness and um, a newfound commitment, I think, to really investing in those friendships as if they are family, you know? Um, and that could look different for all of us and probably will look different with different people at different points in my life. But it just really, yeah, I was, I really came away with um, a, a deeper awareness of how important these connections are and how when we're not duty bound, by dint of our biology to care for these people, to care about these people, then we really have to consciously choose to invest in these, in these friendships and these relationships. And investing doesn't necessarily look like being the one who does all the giving. Investing in our found family friendships can equally look like asking for help when we need it. You know, there's something very connective about that as well. It's about being vulnerable with each other and yeah, I, I, I need you, you know, can you help me? Um, it'd be very difficult to say, very difficult to kind of like fess up to in our uber self-sufficient societies and individualistic societies. But I think that's a really important part of kind of nurturing our found family connections too. And like I said, I mean, who knows what the future will hold, <laughs> but that who will look after you when you're old? I mean, that question is one that I've heard sort of on repeat, I suppose, from my middle thirties onwards. And it's definitely the one that has brought me closest to overriding my affirmative no and sort of doing the, oh, we should just go for it. Oh, oh no one's ever ready. I'm sure I'll enjoy it once I, once I do it, you know, because yeah, there's a huge amount of fear around who will look after me when I'm old, not least because the lion's share and beyond of care for elders is just expected to fall to biological family members. Because again, this kind of caregiving work within the family structure is assumed as a labor of love that people will feel um, duty, that people are duty bound to perform and will feel, um, what's the word, will gladly take on. <laughs> Um, because it is our duty and because these are our family. If you look at the research um, among family caregivers, particularly among children who are expected to assume care, whether it's physical, medical care, financial care for their parents, 
there are hugely huge spikes in depression, anxiety, even suicidal ideation among individuals who are just have this, this caregiving duty sort of thrust upon them. It's an absolutely enormous responsibility that should not fall to individuals. This is a societal responsibility that is, again, completely overlooked in a capitalist economy that only values human life for its earning capacity. So anybody who is not actively earning, actively contributing to the economy is completely undervalued um, and therefore under supported. This includes mothers and by extension their children, and it includes people who have aged out of the workforce. And I think one of the big challenges for us as a society as we move through this century and we continue to have populations that are steadily getting older, we continue to have more mature populations because there are going to be fewer children, fewer young people. We're going to need to come up with really innovative and revolutionary ways of looking after our elders. Um, and I think that will be probably a grassroots effort, actually. And I think Jody is someone who's very actively invested and involved in looking at what that might look like. Um, I'm very interested myself in, in researching further what that might look like and, you know, researching, meeting, interacting with communities where proper elder care is in place. And when I say proper elder care, I mean more um, humane and respectful um, and yeah, innovative ways of caring for people, actually looking at what do people need as they age and how can that be provided for on a community level? Um, that I think, yeah, it's one of the number one questions and challenges that we face as a society um, this century. So very interesting conversation too to be part of um, and to witness unfolding, I think. I appreciate how you shared um, something that Jody Day is doing, how she's really looking locally to mentor women. Like she's in her sixties, mentoring women who are like 20 years younger than her and building those relationships locally with women in yeah. younger generations. Like that's one really practical, exactly uh, smart thing to do. Exactly. So she is, proactively fostering relationships, intergenerational relationships between women without children. I, when I learned about this, when I interviewed her for the book, um, I immediately just said, how can I get involved? <laughs> how can I get involved? This is so needed, you know? Um, and I haven't heard from her yet, how I can be involved, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> but I will follow yeah, up with her. Other. I just think that this is, um, yeah, it, it excites me that kind of thinking I mean I'm talking keep talking about innovative things. it seems very practical actually as you said it's um it's not a huge stretch or it doesn't require enormous innovation to realize that actually what older people need is people who are slightly younger than them slightly help more able-bodied to just help them out with stuff you yeah. know and then for people who are in need of full-time medical care that these people somehow need to have that provided for them on an affordable basis so that it doesn't just automatically sort of fall to their biological next of kin many of whom are then put under extreme financial pressure because they're expected out of duty to their biological kin to perform these duties um that whole sort of industry really needs to be re-examined i think um and like i said the the research 
on the mental health impacts, particularly on people who assume those caregiving roles is really incredibly damning to, to why that just, it just doesn't work to, to expect people's children to do that for them. And I don't want to leave this conversation without talking about another legacy. That is what your book ultimately points us to. And how, how do you see this, this other legacy? Yeah. So the last chapter us is an other legacy, three words. So not just another legacy, but an other, an other way of even thinking about legacy, you know, um, this comes back to the something is ending with me when I don't have children. And I definitely have had women who've told me and shared with me during the process of kind of being out there speaking about the book that they get a lot of pressure from their family to who's going to carry on the family name, you know, who's going to, who's going to, to carry our genetic imprint into the future. <laughs> and I think that's one way that we think about legacy. You know, my, if my children are my legacy, then part of me, lives on and I also I think that the the sort of emphasis and focus on that is actually deeply spiritual I think that this is really this is really about wanting to know that when our time is up it's not over <laughs> you know <laughs> that part of us will live on in our children um and so with an other legacy I'm sort of inviting readers to think about all the different ways that we, our lives kind of ca can count, you know, our lives can have an impact that lasts beyond our physical existence on this plane. Um, and I sort of talk about, well, the one thing that I, that I write about quite in depth is a concept of called generativity, which is one of the psychologist Eric Erickson's, um, I think eight stages of psychosocial development generativity is the life stage that sort of defines ages 40 to 60 um and it's the time the life stage as he defined it when people start asking how can I make my life count how can I give back in some way to future generations and Eric Erickson even in the 1950s did not suggest that generativity could only be um could only be enacted by parenting our biological children um, that it had much broader definition than that. Um, and it could be enacted in all sorts of different ways. In the book, I make the point that generativity sounds like generous activity. And that in fact, anything that we do, which is in some way an act of generosity to another human being is about, is creating a legacy. Like there are so many things that we do every day, conversations that we have, actions that we take that impact other human beings where we won't ever necessarily see the true impact or the ripple effect that it might have, but is impacting the world in some small way. And so really thinking about generativity as part of enacting an other legacy is a call to really kind of living our lives intentionally and understanding that every choice we make, every action that we take um, is in some way going to be impacting either our immediate environment or the wider communities that we're part of. Um, and so that just felt very empowering and inspiring to think about legacy in that way, you know? Um, and it applies to one of the, the biggest sort of questions, I think that particularly younger women without kids are facing the, in, these, in these times, um, which is around climate and what kind of a world are we leaving for the children? There are so many, um, younger women, particularly in their 20s, 
who are questioning the ethics of bringing a child into the world for as long as governments refuse to take decisive action on climate change and refuse to really see this as the existential threat that it is. Um, and I don't think often those fears are taken seriously, particularly by older generations. But for anybody contemplating bringing a child into the world now in 2023, knowing that 2050 is the date currently when we've been told we are going to reach a tipping point in terms of climate collapse, it's an absolutely very real fear. Someone being born today will just be going into college at that time in their lives. So as for, like I said, for as long as for as long as governments globally refuse to really take this issue seriously, I think there will be a growing um, cohort who are what I define as childless by climate change. And I think that's a very real issue. And what is your current growing edge? <laughs> My current growing edge. Um, My current growing edge. So the other thing that really um, became very present for me, removing alcohol for life from my life was my workaholic tendencies, my workaholism, which in turn is very tied to low self-esteem and the belief that in order to be valuable and valid, I must constantly be producing something um, must constantly be impressive, must constantly be pulling rabbits out of hats and making stuff happen. And so I think my growing edge is stepping back from that mentality um, and appreciating that it's okay to just coast sometimes and to not always be making something, doing something, proving something. Um, and that that might actually be a better way to live and that that might actually deepen my relationships with my friends, with my family of origin. Um, yeah, so I think that's, yeah, my growing edge is stepping out of that identity, which has really defined me for most of my adult life. And now that this book is finished, I know that you're still bringing it into the world, but do you have a sense of what's next for you on the horizon? Um, saying no to lots of coast, coasting a little more, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have ideas for other books. Um, a couple are stronger than others. At the moment, I'm in that sort of almost postpartum phase of just, I just need to rest and tend to this project and continue to sort of like steward it into the world um so yeah what's next is just more of where I'm at right now I think but I will be writing more books I I'd love to write fiction I haven't vocalized that in public before but as somebody who has always read fiction this is the interesting thing I don't read non-fiction at all but I think it's partly because so much of my work as a journalist and now as a non-fiction writing coach is around is very research heavy um for pleasure for myself I only read fiction and I would I have I have dreams of writing a novel but I don't know <laughs> I don't know I if that I for could. you I can see you being really good at that oh maybe we'll see I'd love I would love to I'm glad I'm vocalizing it actually I think that's something I would just find incredibly 
pleasurable. Um, so let's see. And how can listeners learn more about you? And do you have anything on the horizon that you want to let us know about? Um, I'm fairly active on Instagram at the moment, which is not usually my favorite place to be, but I'm enjoying being there speaking about the book that's at Ruby Warrington. Um, upcoming, I have a in-person Women Without Kids retreat at the Kripalu Center in Massachusetts. That's going to be over the weekend of June 14th to 16th, I think are the dates. Um, it's a, the middle of weekend, the middle of June weekend anyway. So that is something I'm really excited about actually doing in-person launch events for the book, which are the first in-person events I've really done since the pandemic. I just was really struck by the hunger. I'll use the word hunger among women without kids to find one another, to commune with one another, to debate some of the issues that I raise in the book, to process some of their internal conflicts around being women without kids. And that's, you know, the, the subhead of the book is the, the revolutionary rise of an unsung sisterhood. And that's something, title. something I've always felt very strongly is this sense of being the only one. And part of me is very comfortable being an outsider um, and sort of walking an unconventional path. And that's, again, something that's about the, you know, not unique, but that's, that's just baked into my personality. Um, but it can be very lonely. And I know that from my own personal experience and what other people have shared with me, the questioning um, of should I become a mother? Why don't I want to become a mother? What's wrong with me? It can often be very internal. There aren't very many places to discuss this outside perhaps of a room with a therapist, but in terms of community spaces to discuss some of the internal ambivalence or conflicts we might feel about being women without kids, there are very few spaces. So I'm really excited to create this space at Kripalu that weekend um, and bring people together to meet each other and to, um, to yeah, just, just talk about it. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure having you and thank you for this contribution. Thank you for deepening the conversation. And I wish you well as you continue just to bring this more fully into the world. Well, thanks again for having me. It's been great talking with you. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of the Herself Podcast. And thank you for taking the time to turn in and tend to yourself. This is a lifelong journey and every little step we take matters. Along the way, I'm right here walking beside you, sharing my own twists and turns and what I learned from them as we go. If you enjoyed what you heard today, I invite you to go deeper with me by enrolling in my free course, Seven Habits of Whole Women. Just head over to sarahavonstover.com, click on the link in the top right corner of the page, and the first day of this free seven-day mini course will be sent to you right away. Inside, you'll discover simple things you can do to experience your wholeness more often, starting right now. And if you haven't already, I invite you to hit subscribe on this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. If you enjoyed your time here, I'd also be very grateful if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast. That way, other women who might enjoy this can better find it too. Above all, keep going. I believe in you. And until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.